hey, I just want to welcome you guys. If you're new to Anthem this morning, uh, we just welcome you. Thanks for sharing your Sunday with us. And we're going to dive into the book of Matthew this morning. Uh, we've been, we started a series last week in the book of Matthew, and we're going to be in the book of Matthew for a while. And we made our way through the genealogy of Jesus. How many remember the list of names from last week? Anybody memorize them over the last week? Taylor, I know you have them memorized. Um, but this morning we're going to dive into uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. I'm going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, before we get started, why don't you maybe grab the hand of the person to your right and to your left, and can we just pray before we get going? Jesus, uh, we thank you for this time we get together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the work that it can and will and is doing in us. We pray, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would flush through this room this morning, God. I pray that you be the one to do um, miraculous work in our midst, Jesus, that you be healing hearts, that you be healing relationships, that you be restoring lives, redeeming people, pulling them out of the pits, Jesus, and setting their feet upon the rock. We pray today, Jesus, would be an opportunity for your salvation to be proclaimed and for others to be invited into your story, Jesus, to have a relationship with you. Um, and Jesus, I just thank you for each individual in this room. And though I don't know where they come from and where they're going this morning, I do know that uh, you're here in our midst. And we thank you for that, Jesus. We ask um, that you bring about a rest and a peace in this place as you speak to us this morning in your name. Amen. Awesome. Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25 is where we're going to be. So again, we're jumping into uh, week two of the study. Last week we wrapped up the genealogy of Jesus in verses 1 through 17, and we talked about how in the genealogy are all these essential pieces to the story of the origin of Jesus. And we talked about how this term genealogy actually means Genesis, and that in the book of Matthew, Matthew's writing uh, about the Genesis or the beginning or the origin of something, of, of Christ. And so we talked about how important the genealogy of Jesus was to the Jews, that, that they had to see how the Christ child fulfilled Old Testament prophecy and how Christ came from the, the lineage of the patriarchs of their faith, Abraham and David. And so uh, as much as genealogies might seem a bit boring to us, uh, there's a ton of substance to this list of names as we talked about last week. And so um, also, we, we talked about last week the fact that in Jesus' genealogy are a bunch of messy and imperfect lives that God would bring his son up through uh, in order to redeem mankind through Jesus, the Messiah. And I love the reminder that you and I's lives are littered with dysfunction. Does anybody here not have dysfunction somewhere in their background? I really want to meet you. If, you, if you. if everything's all good, then you are a person that I want to spend time with. But most of our lives are littered with dysfunction. It's somewhere in our heritage and in our lineage. Um, and as many of us struggle in wondering how God can or will use people that come from broken past, I'm hoping that uh, this morning we just see the hope that lies for each of us that are facing messy, dysfunctional situations in our life. And so as we look at the book of Matthew, um, I, I wanted to back up a little bit. Uh, can anybody guess who wrote the book of Matthew? Yeah, Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, but Matthew was the one who penned it. 
Um, Matthew eventually became an apostle and a disciple of Jesus, just to give you a little background of who he is. Um, in the scriptures, this word apostle was a messenger. It was somebody sent by God, and, and so it was also somebody who witnessed the life of Christ, like an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, somebody who walked with Jesus. And so Matthew was this apostle, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus or followers of Jesus. And Matthew also became one of the four evangelists that would go on to write one of the gospels. And so we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Matthew being uh, writing the one obviously named after him. And uh, these four gospels are the stories of Jesus's birth, from uh, birth to through his life, through his death, his resurrection, and the gospels tell Jesus's story. And we've been really looking forward to jumping into Matthew and studying the life of Jesus and asking this question, um, if Christ is who he is and he did what he did for us, what does it look like for us to actually walk in and live out the teachings that he taught us uh, in his life? And all four of these gospel writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these accounts of Jesus' life. And Matthew's life is not much different than the lives of those in Jesus' genealogy. As we talked about dysfunction, we talked about a messy past. Uh, Matthew himself uh, was Jewish, and before Matthew became a disciple of Jesus, he was the tax collector or a publican in the town of Capernaum. Uh, if you know anything about tax collectors at that time, they were absolutely despised by their culture because they worked for the Roman government and they became rich by collecting taxes from their own people. And so often um, they would even collect these taxes dishonestly and collect excessive amounts of these taxes, and so they were fairly well off. And so tax collectors such as Matthew were actually seen by the religious elite or the Pharisees that we talk about as these sinful people, like so sinful that even spending time with them could immediately tarnish a good person's reputation. So you didn't spend time with the tax collectors, which is why Jesus gets such a hard time later on in his life um, from the religious elite because he's hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners that are kind of all lumped into one category there. So imagine having a job that your culture literally deemed as sinful. Uh, it, it's impossible to save a person who, who claims not to need saving. And, and so many of Jesus' followers were from the poor. Many of Jesus' followers were rejected. They were the sick. They were the sinful. They were the weary. And he never condemned those people. It's really interesting in Christ's life. Um, those were the ones he forgave. Those were the ones that he encouraged. Those were the ones that he hung out with. And in fact, he said he didn't come to call the righteous, but he came to call the sinners. And so Jesus' harshest condemnations were actually against the religious elite. They were against the, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, the, the scribes who, who thought they were good, who thought they were worthy, and better than the tax collectors and the sinners. And Matthew was one of these. Matthew was one of the tax collectors that Jesus saves. And so when, when he was called by Jesus, Matt, Matthew immediately, like some of them left their nets and followed Jesus. They were fishermen out on the lake fishing. They leave their nets behind to follow Jesus. Matthew, on the other hand, leaves his tax collection booth and he follows Jesus with all his life. He leaves behind his source of riches, he leaves behind his position, his security, his comfort, um, and, and he, he jumps in fully to follow Christ. And, and this leads to this life of hardship. He's traveling, lives this life full of hardship. Eventually, he's martyred. 
um, and he leaves his old life for this new life in Christ. And so we see this 180-degree turn that, that this guy makes in his life. And so this Jewish kid turned tax collector or sinner in, in the culture's eyes was one that Jesus redeemed and pulled out of his ways and saved him. So here's this guy writing this account that not only is empowered by the Spirit of God to pen this account of Jesus' life, but he also walked with Jesus and also has a ton to be grateful for in his life because he once was lost and now is found. He has a ton of gratitude because he knows what it was like to be the dysfunctional mess up who nobody wanted to spend time with and the religious thought was just a sinner. And Jesus spends time with him. Jesus pulls him out of the mire and he sets his feet upon a rock. Jesus saves him. And I want to remind us this morning before we get into this that the purpose of this series of messages that we're doing um, is one, to recognize who Jesus is and what he's done, but two, for us to recognize what it looks like for us to follow him. Because to be honest with you, I think for too long, the, the church has read the teachings of Jesus, they've locked them into their brain, but somehow we've failed to actually do what Jesus told us to do. And, and as I was beginning to pray about uh, preaching through this series a few months ago, the Lord really convicted me. And his challenge to me was extremely simple, and I want to share it with you guys this morning. And I'm not sharing it as though like I'm some hypocrite and I never actually do what Jesus taught us to do. But I really felt like going into this, Jesus said this to me. I felt like he said, don't teach anything from the stage that you're not going to put into practice yourself. And um, this last week, as I was praying, going into the first week, I, I was literally just saying, Jesus, how do you want to move in my life? What opportunities have you surrounded me with on a daily basis? And I don't think it's that you lack opportunity in your life. I think it's that your eyes are blinded to see the opportunity that awaits you. And most of the time, your eyes are blinded by what we would deem as good things in life. Sometimes they're blinded by horrible things in life. And sometimes you're just distracted because you're too busy trying to live your life. All of us find ourselves at a place where we're blinded to actually just have our eyes opened to the opportunities that stand right before us. And so my prayer for this journey has been that we would be on this journey together as a church, that I'm invited into this journey with you. I'm not up here teaching you as though I've mastered it and figured it all out. I want to be up here teaching as though as I read this, I'm trying just like you to walk this out in my own life and figure out what it looks like to take the teachings of Christ and apply them to my own life. Um, I, I really felt going into this that um, I wasn't to use a bunch of old analogies and old stories of what God's done in the past in my life, but to trust him to be creating new stories in and through me as we go through this series. And this last week I had a couple super miraculous um, appointments uh, at a coffee shop and at the post office that to me were reminders that, man, Chris, sometimes you get so distracted with your life and so busy with things that you miss out on the opportunities that sit right underneath your nose. So let's read uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. You guys can say word when you're there. A third of you are there this morning. I'll just wait for all of you to say word this morning because it's on the screen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed, betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, backing up, who's heard the story before? Yeah, usually it's like two months from now, right? We're getting to it a little early this year. Going back there in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Um, I want to look at that word birth for a second. If you remember last week, we talked about this word genealogy that was used in verse 1. And actually, when he, when he says birth here, now the birth of Jesus Christ, it's actually the same word that he's using. And the, the, uh, the actual translation of this word is Genesis. Uh, it means Genesis or the origins. And so it's pretty amazing when you understand what Matthew's actually saying here. He's saying that this is not only the lineage that came from Jesus, it's not only his past, but it's also how Jesus, the Messiah, came into existence and what his purpose was. We all have this family of origin, and we learn where we came from, why we tick the way we do, who your parents were, what your parents did, how that shaped your life, what your past and your decisions in the past and your grandparents and your friends and like what, how has your origin, your family of origin shaped you for who you are today? And why is it important for us to know where we came from? Because it actually teaches us how to navigate the future. It's important to know where you came from and what your past is because it helps you navigate where you're headed. And our future is actually shaped by our past. Um, who you are is shaped by where you came from. And so Matthew starts his writing off with Jesus's family of origin because Matthew's whole purpose is to show you who Jesus is. Matthew's telling us Jesus's story, not just to give us a bunch of good background on Jesus so you have it all figured out, but so we have, and not so that you just have a bunch of information on Jesus, but his hope is that by telling us this, we can actually begin to know who we are in Christ. We have to know who he is to know who it is we are. And so the more we understand who Jesus is, the more we understand who we are. Uh, many of us say things like, I want to be more like Jesus. Anybody ever used that word before or that phrase? I want to be more like Jesus. Maybe you don't. It's all good. <laughs> but how do you become like Jesus if you don't know who he is, what his purpose for coming was, and what he told us to do? How do you become like something that you do not know? It's very difficult. So it's important for us to know where Jesus came from, how he came into existence, what his purpose is, and who we are in him. And so this is why Matthew opens up with this genealogy, and then the next line after that, he intros what came next. The birth of Jesus, or the genesis of Jesus Christ, took place like this. And then he goes into this next section. Why is it important for us to know this? about the birth of Christ. 
Uh, I, I wrote down four things that I, I think are important for us to recognize and why we should know how the birth of Jesus came about. One, to know the lineage and the genesis of Jesus Christ. Two, to lay a foundation of Jesus' purpose on this earth. Three, in order to establish a plumb line of sorts in our life. And four, so we can be changed by and through the life of Jesus. If you look back through church history, we were talking this week in our sermon group about, go back a couple thousand years, look at every primary creed that's been put in place by, uh, by the church over throughout thousands of years. And so they would put these creeds in place to develop sort of a plumb line of what their beliefs are, their statement of faith, what the scriptures say, and what it is they're going to stand on. And so you look at the Apostles' Creed, you look at the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, um, you look at the, the small catechism of Martin Luther, um, the Augsburg Confession, you look at all these creeds that, that you can go online, you can study all these creeds, and all of them are going to center around this idea of this virgin birth, or this virgin conception. And it's central to what we believe as followers of Jesus. Without this, Jesus is just a normal human being, which many religion, religions actually believe, that Jesus was a good prophet, but not necessarily the Son of God. And there were a ton of, understand, at this point, when Jesus is born, there's a ton of lowercase m messiahs walking around on this earth claiming to be the messiah like self-appointed messiahs at that time. And they were making these claims to be the messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. But Jesus is the only one that was born of a virgin who was literally conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit without sexual intercourse. And so this truth is pivotal to what we believe as Christians. Every generation has had cultural junk being thrown at them and trying to get them to veer off from the truth. And in the early church, the idea that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin was one of those things that had become a very big distraction in the church, trying to get them to jump off from the truth. This was some of the most used verbal attacks against Christianity in the early church centered around this one concept. Uh, in, in the second century, I was reading this piece and. Uh, there was this Greek writer named Celsus, and he wrote a book about how Jesus was the illegitimate offspring of a girl named Mary and a Roman soldier named Panthera. And then he also goes on to imply in that that she was raped. And so then later in, in some rabbinic texts, uh, they refer to Jesus as Jesus ben Pandera or Jesus son of Pandera, like all of which was sort of intended as this insult against Christians. And so the argument kind of went like this for them. Jesus was this despicable person. Obviously, the Son of God could not be like this horrible, despicable person, so Jesus wasn't the Son of God. And they would use these attacks to thwart believers from the truth. And so when we talk about the virgin birth, I know you've heard this story. I know you've read this before, but you need to understand that it is a plumb line fact, truth, in what we believe um, of Jesus Christ. And there will come in generations people that come to attack the church and try to veer the church off from the truth. And if we don't know what the foundational elements are of what we believe about Jesus, who he is, what his purpose is, how he moves in and through us, then we will veer from the truth ourselves. And so 
uh, again, mo- moving on, uh, as we get into this text, I, I was thinking about this the other day. When, when a baby is on its way, when a mother's pregnant, you parents make preparations for the baby, don't you? Anybody not prepare? Like you just had a baby, you didn't know it's coming. Like, oh my goodness, I didn't get anything for it. But you know as a parent going into pregnancy that your life is about to radically change, don't you? That things are about to look different I remember preparing for our kids to come home. Um, we prepped the room, we ordered tons of diapers, you clean the house thoroughly, you get the car seats ready, um, you start to time the contractions, you do what you can to speed up the labor by going for walks and trying to figure out how to get that baby out of there. But all because we know that when the baby comes, our lives will be different. Like, we will be now a family of three or a family of four, and it will radically change the family dynamic. We know that getting places will take longer. Some of you, it took you a little longer to get to church this morning, didn't it? You know that you can kiss the good night sleep routine goodbye for a while. In some cases, like my son Judah, it was like a year But everybody knows that when the baby comes, that your life is changed in some ways. And I want to point out that that's what's happening in this story, only it's a little bit different because of the nature of the baby that's about to come. Um, We're going to see that this baby who's on his way dramatically changes some lives, totally changes the course of their lives, and that's the point, that this baby is different from all other babies. The nature and the essence of this baby, Christ, is different, and he'll dramatically change the lives of some people. Uh, Matthew tells this story from his perspective, or from Joseph's perspective, but not Mary's perspective, and so if you go read the, the, the account of Jesus' birth in the book of Luke, it's told from Mary's perspective. And Luke's gospel account, again, it, it focuses more on like the, the faith and the character of Mary, whereas when we get into Matthew's account, he focuses a little more on the faith and the character of Joseph. Um, Matthew places Joseph front and center for some reason. And the story sort of has three parts that we're going to read. Uh, It has this section on Mary and Joseph's relationship, the section on this angelic vision that they receive, uh, that he receives, and then the incarnation or the the dwelling part. And the big idea or the the main point of the story is that when Jesus comes, Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. Has everything been changed for you in this room this morning? Has your life been totally flipped upside down? I read a story this week of a physician um, who was made famous because of his discovery of chloroform and its use as an anesthetic. And he was asked what he considered to be his greatest discovery of all time. And his answer was that I have a savior. And I truly pray this morning that some of you will make that same discovery this morning. That the greatest unpacking and the greatest discovery that you can find in your life is that you have a Savior in Jesus. That is Matthew's whole purpose of writing this, is to reveal this Savior to us and his plan for redemption, the redemption of mankind. And so he goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from what? The Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Back up a little bit, that statement, Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Um, The two were engaged to be married. And so in Jewish culture, the bride would be betrothed to a groom, and it would be like a firm commitment that would usually take about a a year before they'd actually be married. And so during this year, the girl would actually live with her family, but it was like the first stage of marriage minus the consummation. So they had yet to have sexual intercourse with one another. And in Jewish culture, engagement frequently occurred when the women were like 12 years old. But the bride would stay at her parents' house for a year or two before she actually came under her husband's authority and before she moved in with him. And so Joseph and Mary were engaged. They were betrothed, publicly and legally committed to each other and virtually married, but yet to live with one another and yet to have sex with one another. And and so, for instance, um, in Jewish culture, an engaged woman would actually be punished as an adulteress, whereas uh, the punishment of a virgin who, was, who wasn't engaged was a different kind of punishment. And so this was a really serious situation, that she's found to be with child, but she's betrothed, betrothed to Joseph, and they have yet to live together and have yet to have sex with one another. But in the culture's eyes, something bad had taken place. And then he goes on to say, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so Matthew doesn't really give a ton of details. He just says that Mary is with child, and it was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the the virgin birth that we talk about, which is actually kind of an inaccurate way to put it, if you think about it, because it's technically like a virgin conception. Um, But Joseph is referred to as the husband of Mary, not the biological father of Jesus. Uh, Joseph is put in this really awkward situation, and it's really difficult for us to overestimate how awkward and difficult and life-changing this situation is for both Mary and Joseph. This is like an unprecedented situation. Like, imagine finding this out. Imagine the conversations that would happen around this situation that you find yourself in. He knows the public will be less apt to believe him. He knows that he's going to face these accusations that he sort of jumped the gun and didn't wait. And it would literally take an act of God to convince someone of what Mary had claimed. So then he goes on to say that Joseph was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph is a pretty amazing guy, if you ask me. A pretty stand-up dude. Uh, we don't sing any songs about Joseph at church, right? There's no hymns that mention Joseph if you look through hymns. Uh, you don't read a ton about Joseph, but Matthew places Joseph front and center in the story. He, he's, mentioned, he's mentioned twice as much as Mary in his account. And when he says this word just, that Joseph was a just man, he means that he was a man who was devoted, he was devout, devoted to obey the laws of Moses. And even though he obeys the laws of Moses, he's not willing to use the law in all, in all, in its entirety to shame Mary. And he basically had mercy on her. And so he plans this quiet divorce that that he could have given her like a bill of divorce and it's over. 
And all he knows is that his fiance is pregnant and that he's not the father. Now imagine being in Joseph's shoes. Mary, at least, from her perspective, has this growing fetus to confirm the angel's words, right? She knows it's legit, but Joseph has no idea. Joseph didn't have the same kind of confirmation that Mary did. And so Joseph displays this amazing faith. And there are men who are righteous and aren't kind. And there are men who are kind and aren't righteous. And Joseph is sort of this righteous and kind man, like a stand-up dude. And I think it's interesting how disruptive the coming of Jesus was. The world had no idea what God was about to do. And in a sense, it's kind of like this illustration of the gospel message coming to a person. Like when Christ comes to us, Will you welcome him or will you reject him? Because many rejected Jesus. When the gospel comes to us and we're invaded by it, it changes the way we live. It changes the way our family and our friends think about us. It it, it totally disrupts our life, but it makes all the difference in the world in us. And then he goes on to talk about, to tell the story of this angelic visitation. It says, but as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Like as he's freaking out, considering all the options he had and trying to figure out how to make himself look right in society's eyes, it says an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This is like the setup for the whole story. I mean, I know these, these few weeks, it, the beginning of this series through Matthew is a ton of information and the setup for what we're about to do, but we have to lay this foundation of who is Jesus? Do we actually believe that he is the son of God, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin? Do we believe this? Because if you believe this and it is truth and it is a plumb line in our life, it radically changes the way you live. And so Joseph receives this visitation from this angel. And at the end there it says that she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. What would you do if you were Joseph hearing this? having this visitation from this angel, I'd be freaking out. And so the angel gives Joseph these sort of five details. He says, one, that it's God's will that you marry Mary. Mary, Mary. Joseph's probably sitting there going, do I marry her, do I not? Like, what should I do? He gets this confirmation. Second, that Mary's pregnancy is miraculous. It's supernatural. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God doing this in her. Third, that the baby's going to be a boy. This is before ultrasounds, people, right? This is like the, the uh, God-inspired ultrasound. Like, you're going to have a boy. I mean, even at that point, how many of you have been like, well, it's still a 50-50 chance, Right? You're going to have a boy. The fourth, the name of your boy is going to be Jesus. 
Jesus, that, that word, actually in the Hebrew is Yeshua, and it means salvation. And so literally what the angel is saying is this. Listen to this. If you don't get anything out of today, at least get this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name salvation. That's literally what the angel is saying to him. Fifth, and then in connection with his name, that your boy is going to be a savior, that he will save his people from their sins. What a crazy call. Your boy will be your savior. <laughs> your son coming will actually save you. This is quite a kid, not your average birth, right? It's a lot to take in, this life changer for Joseph. So now, now you're taking in the, womb, the woman who's publicly seen as unfaithful. For the rest of your life, you're actually going to have to live with the accusations of the naysayers who do not believe that that baby came by way of the Holy Spirit. And you're choosing to build your, ma- your marriage on some hard-to-believe circumstances to the outsiders. What a setup. But I think this is what happens when people come into contact with Jesus. Their lives are challenged. I don't know about you, but I remember giving my life to Christ. I remember being afraid, wondering what was next, wondering which of my friends were going to peace out on me and which would stay near, wondering what decisions I needed to make now that I was choosing to follow Jesus and what sort of... uh, um, reactions I would get from other people. And I think that Mary and Joseph realized that this is going to be life-changing, that truly life will never be the same again. And it's like you and I, when we encounter Jesus, Christ changes everything. He changes everything. And until this point, Christ had changed nothing in Joseph's life. And from now on, Christ would actually change everything in Joseph's life. And I wonder if everything has been changed by Christ for you this morning. A question for you to ponder. Has everything been changed by Jesus in you? When you open the door to Jesus in simple faith and trust, it's terrifying. There's a point at which we do not know what the next step is and what it's going to look like, but we trust him. And sometimes I wish that more people would actually be terrified by this story because I think we've heard it so much and we've read it so much in churches and we go to church at Christmas time and we read the story over and over again that it's almost become like the Charlie Brown cartoon playing over and over again in our heads. And for some of us, it's lacked luster. For some of us, it's been watered down almost to the point that we don't know if we believe it's truth anymore. And for some of us, it's a story that's actually failed to change our life. It's failed to change us. But the message from this angel is don't fear, do it. Receive him. Open your lives, your closets, your family to Jesus. Will we trust in the word of God or will we trust in our own instincts? And I think it's awesome that Mary and Joseph did not rely on their instincts. They actually relied on God's word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so Joseph is portrayed as this man who knew the law but practiced 
grace. And Joseph is also obedient in the same way that Mary was. They believed the Lord in spite of stressful circumstances in their life. And this is the last part of the story, verse 22 through 25. It says this, And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Notice Matthew's comment there that he says, this Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament. In other words, this isn't just the beginning of a new religion. It's not the beginning of some new sect. This is actually the fulfillment of God's promises to the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Last week, Matthew 1.1 said he was the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here's these pointers to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Um, In the beginning, Adam and Eve dwelt with God. And then they sinned, and God's presence left. And then years later, God graciously gives this plan for this tabernacle that would be erected. And, and, And now his presence has kind of returned in this modified sense, and it's moving around to different locations. But his presence existed in this tabernacle, in this dwelling place. And then this temple is erected later on. And the temple becomes this more permanent location of God's presence. It was housed within this temple. People would come to partake in the presence of God in a place. And now Jesus actually comes to earth. And he dwells among his people. And he literally, that word dwell is to tabernacle amongst us. Like he dwells within us. And then we look at history. If you go to the book of Revelation, it ends with the redeemed in heaven dwelling with God. Like it's all about dwelling with him. Revelation says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so this whole idea of this incarnation, like Jesus, the God-man taking on flesh, is sort of this foretaste of heaven for us, like mankind being with their creator forever and ever and ever. And this is the fulfillment of a specific prophecy, as he points out, Isaiah 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this word Emmanuel means God with us. He's the with us God. And so when Joseph woke up, he obediently fulfills his obligation to his betrothed wife. And Joseph takes Mary in and he says that he did not know her until after Jesus was born. So he literally is married to her, but does not have sexual relations with her until after Jesus is born. And this is the meaning of the story, that God is with us. I want you guys to step back from the story for just a minute. I want to invite the worship team to come up here and um, the people who are going to be serving communion. But I want you to step back a minute for a minute in the story. And I want you to imagine this. God is in the flesh in Jesus. 
God in the flesh. I remember when I was a kid, and I would play with my dad, and I loved it when my dad would get down on all fours, and he'd wrestle with me. I loved it when my dad would come down to my level and want to know me and hang with me. For some reason, I think those moments as a dad or as a kid make your dad feel way more human. And I've found this over the years with my own kids, that when I play board games with my kids, when I play Nerf battles with my kids, when I throw passes to my son, when I chase them around the house, when I tickle them, I see them light up. Their eyes get all bright. And it's like, for a moment, like dad became human. <laughs> when I lay down and my kids come and they jump on me and they wrestle me, they love it. And it's how I connect with them. And this is what God did. He literally stooped down to our level and identified with you and I in his son Jesus. I've said this several times, but when Jesus came, he changed everything. He changed everything for Mary and Joseph, and he's changed everything for you and I. Have you been challenged by Jesus in your life? Have you been invaded and has your life been turned upside down by him? There's sort of a sense in which if you have not been made uncomfortable by Jesus' demands, then I don't know if you're saved. Because part of trusting And following him was allowing him to flip our life upside down. And Jesus demands your total allegiance this morning, 100%. And he offers you himself as your savior this morning to literally save you. And there is the sense in which this should make you very uncomfortable, just like it made Joseph uncomfortable. This means that this morning you recognized your lostness. This means this morning you recognize your helplessness, that you cannot do this yourself. This means this morning you recognize your rebellion and your running. You recognize your own wickedness. You recognize your sin. You recognize your heart, that you have broken the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But his word says this, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Has everything been changed for you, in you, through you this morning? I want to pray, and then we're going to um, take communion with one another. And um, when I ask you to bow your heads, I'm pleading with you to actually bow your hearts before the Lord this morning. All of us need the reminder this morning of who Jesus is. And as we take communion, the challenge to us is that we do this in remembrance of who? Of who? Jesus, his body broken, 
and his blood shed for us. Some of you in this room have yet to put your trust and your faith in Jesus and believe that his body was broken and his blood was shed. That he died a brutal death and he did not stay on that cross because the Holy Spirit came and hit him and raised him from the dead and the same spirit that was in Jesus now resides within us. We are his dwelling place. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for each individual in this room. I thank you for your story. God, some of us just need that kick in the pants this morning and the reminder of who you are. There's some in this room that have ran hard, God, and uh, they've tried their best to get as far away as they can. And this morning, God, I just believe that your hope is their anchor. Jesus, that they're anchored to something eternally. And I pray, Lord, that this morning you save them. God, I pray that there be those in this room that would recognize how far off they are and how much they need you to be the one that would rescue them. We thank you, God, for your son, Jesus, with whom we don't stand a chance, without whom we don't stand a chance, Lord. Thank you for the work of Jesus on that cross. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we come forward to take communion, um, that we don't do this out of uh, just some tradition or just some ritual, but we do this truly believing that this bread is representative of your body broken for us. And the juice that we drink is representative of your blood shed for us, Jesus to wash away, to cleanse us, to purify us from our sin. We thank you for the forgiveness and the grace that you've offered us in your son, Jesus. And I pray this morning as we partake in communion that we would bow our hearts before you, some of us in gratitude and remembrance of what you've done, and some of us for the first time this morning saying, Jesus, save me, because left to myself, I will just destroy my life. And I pray, God, that there be those in this room this morning that would call upon you to be the one to save them, Lord, to be their Messiah, to be their Savior, to be their King, the one who accomplished all for them, who's granted them forgiveness and salvation. And I pray this morning, God, we'd reach out and take it with all we have and live this life fully flipped upside down running for you, Jesus. We love you in your name. Amen.